I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. During the month of January, I had the opportunity to explore our belonging theme in the context of a key phrase from a mission statement. Specifically, we considered how it is that Parish prepares students for the complex global society to which our mission statement refers. Now, we have reached February. I have been so excited since I built the podcast framework last summer about this month's conversations, ones in which we will look at the belonging theme through the lens of technology. As we think about connection, true, authentic human engagement, I have wondered about our increasingly technology-driven society. How is it that anxiety rates, levels of loneliness, and a general sense of isolation are all empirically or statistically rising at a time when technology is ubiquitous? Despite 24-hour connectivity and the proliferation of social media platforms through which we can express our individuality and connection with others who share our interests, we appear to be a society adrift. So, this month, my three conversations, one of which will feature co-host Amari Hayes and members of the parish community, I will explore the idea of how we find belonging in the age of technology and personalization. To get our thinking started, I have one of the nation's leading voices on the subject, Dr. Marion Underwood from Purdue University. I first came to know Dr. Underwood when she was in Dallas at the University of Texas at Dallas. We had her to campus to speak with parents and students about technology and teens. We partnered with her researchers to help generate data. Since then, Dr. Underwood has become the Dean of the College of Health and Human Sciences at Purdue University. Dean Underwood is one of the foremost researchers in the developmental origins and outcomes of social aggression and how adolescence digital communication relates to adjustment. Since 2013, Dr. Underwood and her research group have been conducting a longitudinal study on the origins and outcomes of social aggression and how adolescents use social media. In this conversation, Dr. Underwood and I delve into what her research tells us about adolescent technology and social media use and how it has changed over the last decade. We consider the connection between screen time and wellness. We also ponder whether the technology genie is out of the bottle forever or whether societal shifts will seek and implement limits on its use. I think you will find this to be an informative discussion with Dr. Marion Underwood. Welcome to From My Angle Podcast. I am thrilled to have a friend of Parish now stationed well, well far away up at Purdue University in Indiana, but formerly here at uh, University, of Te- uh, University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Dean Marion Underwood with us today. Uh, Dean Underwood, thanks for joining joining me oh, today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. We are excited to move into this month of February. I've been talking about it on episodes here to four uh, around this theme of belonging because I'm fascinated by the idea of these hyper-connected uh, communities in, uh, that we live in, are always on our phones, uh, always checking our friends and our likes and uh, our, our connections to others. And yet I, I've uh, chronicled in, in previous episodes, uh, you know, this, this sense of disconnection and uh, anomie and loneliness that seems to pervade uh, among us. So Dr. Underwood is an expert in uh, this uh, space of technology, and, and I'm glad to have her here to help us with that today. But before we get started, Dean Underwood, tell us a little bit about your present role at, uh, at, at, at Purdue and really how your background drew you to your expertise and, and interest uh, as a clinical psychologist on uh, adolescent use of technology and, and adolescent social aggression. Sure. Um, well, I serve as the Dean of the College of Health and Human Sciences at Purdue, which is an academic unit devoted to improving the quality of human lives. 
We're actually the second largest college at Purdue, um, and we train, um, we develop a variety of professional practitioners. We train the next generation of scientists, um, and it's an honor to, to lead this college. And my own background is in child clinical psychology, and I've always been interested in how young people navigate their peer relationships, and specifically how young people handle it when they're furious with one another. So <laughs> my graduate training was with someone who studied physical fighting, but you and I both know that the base rate of that is pretty low, thankfully but that young people have other ways of expressing their anger and contempt. So I got more interested in what I call social aggression, which is hurting other people by disrupting their friendships or their social status, you know, malicious gossip, uh, social exclusion and friendship manipulation. Um, and started a study in Dallas in, in 2003 with a group of, uh, of fourth graders and followed them over time. And as they, as they got into the sixth or seventh grade, they would come to my lab and do my study, but they were clutching cell phones, desperate to text. And about that same time, I got a BlackBerry for my own personal use, and I realized I was holding my social world in my hand. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, my, my participants are growing up. They're going into high school. Why am I dragging them into the lab? Why don't I just give them phones and capture the content of their um, digital communication? And so we did that starting in 2008 with a group of 200 young people, and we captured the content of all of their text and their email and their instant messaging through high school. And then as they left high school, we captured the content of their Facebook. Was that the same cohort you had worked with from fourth yep. grade or did you add another 200 to, the, to that cohort? It was cohort? the same group. Uh -huh. So it was the group we had studied from childhood. Wow. And so we had relationships with them and yeah. they trusted us and knew that we would protect their confidentiality, which we did promise them in the study. Mm -hmm. So I had the privilege of seeing exactly what young people sent and received in their text messaging for all their years of high school, which was a window really into the secret adolescent world of peer communication. Wow. And, yeah. and so that cohort now is 20, 21 years old, if I'm doing my math, the yeah. math and math yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, well, it, maybe a little older, but yes. yeah. And has the study concluded or are you, what are your intentions with it? We have concluded our active phase of data collection. We did our last data collection with them when they were around 20 a couple of years ago. Um, and it's not that I'm not interested. It's just I've always been so focused on adolescence that that's really the age range that I that I prefer to study. And of course, as young people age up, they're a little bit harder to track down. They move, you, you know, they become a little more difficult to find. So, so uh, distilling out, you know, 15 plus years of, of studying this cohort of a couple of hundred um, young people, what, two or three observations that you took away from peer relationships and then the, uh, you know, additive uh, element of the technology and how that played into it? Yeah, yeah. I think what I would, what I would say about um, digital communication is that the majority of it is positive. A lot of what young people say in their text messaging and their social media communication is positive, supportive, uplifting. A lot of it's neutral. A lot of it's exchanging information. Hey, mom, where are you going to pick me up? Where am I going to meet my friends at the movies? Um, there are negative forms of communication at fairly low base rates. Those do predict things we would be worrying about. So, for example, my doctoral student, Sam Ehrenreich, did a wonderful study of kids across a ninth grade year. And we measured their levels of aggression, rule breaking, and substance use before they started ninth grade. And then we were able to code the content of their text messaging across ninth grade. And guess what? Those who text about antisocial behavior showed an increase in their actual antisocial behavior 
above and beyond their baseline. So the texting about it predicted an increase above and beyond baseline. And we measured these behaviors by the youth's own reports, their teachers' reports, and their parents' reports. So we had very robust measures. And we think that that increase is due to the fact that young people are socializing each other. It's peer social influence. And so we could see examples in our archive of kids exchanging information about where to smoke pot during school in the school day. Or we could see one person texting another like, oh, I'm driving. And the other child says, well, you're on your bike. No, I stole my mom's car. And then the other person goes, cool. So we see a lot of um, reinforcement, pure reinforcement for deviant behavior and also actual instruction. Like here's where you go to do the bad thing. So it's no wonder. So even though that antisocial communication happens at low base rates, it predicted increases in in rule breaking um, aggression and substance use across the ninth grade year. So as the technology got more sophisticated after 2008, when these kids walked in with their, you know, first version, first version tech devices, and they got to Snapchat and they got to these elements of communication that I suspect you were not able to capture as well. Do you, do you feel you were missing something like uh, was the most negative uh, bullying uh, sort of uh, disconnecting and, and um, ostracizing conversation taking place on a platform other than texting based on your intuition? You know, we think for the time that we were doing the BlackBerry project, um, texting was still very much um, where it was at. And, And that study, that data collection happened from 2008 to 2012. And if you think in, remember the ad, the iPhone came on the scene in about 2011, 2012. So we were really lucky to be doing that study before iPhone technology was prominent because with the iPhone, you cannot access the content of messaging. And we've seen that in the media, right? Recently, law enforcement has wanted to get iMessages. They can't get them. BlackBerry technology allows you to monitor the content. And that's why financial corporations have people use Blackberries. So we were lucky to do the study at a time when texting on Blackberries was cool. Now, even though the young people message on a lot of different platforms now, what's clear from the research is they still text a lot. So the Pew study for Internet and American Life, it's really clear there's a lot of texting going on. And when they do message on the other platforms, Instagram, direct message on Twitter, the the young people say they use it just like they use text messaging. We were able to capture their Facebook messaging when they were a bit older as they were headed out of high school. And so we were able to compare uh, their Facebook messaging to their texting. And it looks like they work uh, pretty similarly. So scrolling way back to your first interest in um, conflict and aggression, you know, in in actually the physical form, right? To uh, now the role that technology has begun to infuse, like what is different how kids come into conflict with one another, manage that conflict? You know, I'm hearing you say technology, not really a huge accelerator to it, but I want you to pick that apart for us. Like how did technology change the game in terms of um, kids and their relationships with one another? Yeah. I mean, I, I believe there's a lot of continuity between young, young people's offline social behavior and their online social experiences. And there's a lot of research to back this up. And it, this approach has a name, it's called co-construction theory. And the idea is that the lives that young people live online are psychologically connected mm-hmm. to their offline relationships and experience. And there's a lot of empirical evidence to back that up. I do think though, especially social media platforms have features that can transform and amplify 
aspects of peer experiences. And this is a theoretical approach put forward by um, Jackie Nezzi and Mitch Princeton. And, and it's really clear that certain features of social media do make new things possible. So simply the fact that you can post something that hundreds of people might immediately see opens up wonderful opportunities for seeking support. So if something bad happens to you, you can post about it and immediately yeah. get support. It also opens up possibilities for really devastating experiences of victimization. So you can post something and one person can say something awful about it that can be terribly humiliating that hundreds of people can see at once. Or, you know, very um, social media can be used to to hurt people. You can post awful pictures. You can malign other people. There's a lot of um, conflict that you can see in comments and in the discussions on the platforms. So that is suddenly more visible too. Yeah, I, I think from the educator standpoint, like to me, my observation would be um, scale and permanence. Yeah. So like as we watch issues unfold, um, if a picture gets sent, and this is a lot of what we deal with, right? Send me a picture of, and it's uh, older kids asking for pictures that are that are um, of students in some form of undress, for example. Like the, if the if the child chooses to send it, right? It is immediately scale scalable, right? So it's going yeah. from one, and instead of it being handed over in an old, a classroom of yesteryear, where it's like, hey, look, and you handed a picture. Right. And one set of eyeballs saw it, but it took a lot of effort to get it to five eyeballs or 10 eyeballs. You know, the scale of the transmission by technology has really um, yep. been one factor. And then, of course, the permanent permanence of it. So yes. even on the apps that allow it to be done through a back channel or to disappear, you know, everything has its sense of permanence once it yep. is either screen caught uh, or or pushed or pushed forward and it's there forever. So I think the archiving, are, archiving, yeah, the archiving piece. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I think has been the most dramatic element of educators having to deal with um, yep. um, student conflict and um, student uh, antisocial behavior or um, student social aggression and bullying that we've seen in the last six to eight years. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that's hard for me about it is both both good and bad. It breaks down boundaries. So. Yeah. We, in, in addition to the BlackBerry project that we did in the, in the Dallas area, I was also part of a study with the Anderson Cooper 360 team called Hashtag Being 13, and that was turned into a, an Anderson Cooper documentary. And that was a study of 200 kids around the country, 13-year-olds. Right. And we asked those 13-year-olds, what's, what's the most hurtful thing that ever happened to you online? And by far, the greatest majority of comments were things like, seeing my friends get together without me, seeing a party I wasn't, I, I wasn't invited to, um, seeing people I thought were my friends hanging out and not inviting me. So, you know, if you think about the way I was brought up, at least, if you went to a party, you didn't tell everybody about it because it might make other people feel bad, especially in that young age group. Either they say pics or it didn't happen. They have to yeah. post a picture of everything. And then once the picture's up, it could hurt people's feelings. And to me, what's scary about the, the social exclusion feature of that is that that's not in most of our definitions of cyberbullying. It's not what we could even detect if we tried to monitor it as parents. It's subtle, but it really hurts them. It's the thing that hurts them the most. So it's that, that sense of boundaries are gone. Everybody can yeah, know yeah. everything. Um, that's an amplifier for sure. 
For sure. And I think we'll circle back to that when we get to this notion of te- like technology and belonging. As the listeners know, once we post your podcast with you in early February, uh, Amari Hayes, a student who I co-host uh, another, po- uh, another episode with each month, and I are going to gather some of our students to really talk about this, like how they're, how they're sensing it and feeling it. But on this notion, I guess, kind of around research and, and use, are there any other things that maybe it's not in your research track, but in your colleagues, um, either there or, or folks that we've continued to help you with at, at UTD here recently? Like, what are some of the interesting research lines or through lines that um, you experts are looking at presently as it relates to adolescence and technology use? Sure. I think in general, what those of us studying the actual content believe is that it's not it's not about screen time. It doesn't matter how much kids are using their phones or not. That's not what predicts difficulty. What predicts difficulty are specific types of content that specific types of people are exposed to. So what matters is how young people spend their time online and also what individual characteristics they bring to the table. So I I am convinced of the power of this theory called the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. I think a lot of the evidence we see in the mental health impact of social media, of digital communication, is that for young people who are socially competent, confident, outgoing, popular, they love social media. They get on social media and they get lots of affirmation. They have tons of friends. Everything they post gets lots of likes and comments. So social media boosts their sense of social well-being. But it looks like the opposite might be true for young people who are lonely, maybe not as connected. If they're spending a lot of time on social media, seeing everyone else, having all of this social connection and fun, they could feel worse about themselves. And that's the biggest fear for me, um, is that the the poor get poor, the more vulnerable kids are the ones who are hurt the most. Yeah. When, When you interview adolescents, they tell you they love social media. They love to know what their peers are doing. They see it as a way to stay connected, to be supportive, to cheer each other on. And there is a lot of that going on. But what about the person who doesn't have as many ties? And so it, it looks like the if any effects we see of social media have to do with individual characteristics of the young person, what they're actually doing. For example, passive browsing is much more harmful than actually engaging on social media. So when kids go on and just scroll and never post themselves, they're more likely to see things that make them feel bad. Mm -hmm. Another individual characteristic that matters is the propensity to engage in social comparison. So kids who are very prone to comparing get on Instagram, they're comparing their inner experiences to everybody else's greatest hits, their beautiful curated filtered photos, and they feel bad about themselves. Yeah, and that, that, by the way, is, is I, I think, a driver for the adult uh, sense of loneliness, too, right? This yes. notion that um, this, this sort of proxy living where you look at the person next to you and the life that they're living is, is, is not yours and how that can create a sense of, of disconnectedness. You, you mentioned this notion of screen time, and, and I uh, wanted to, to talk uh, briefly about this uh, recent New York Times article yes. uh, entitled Panicking About Your Kids' Phones. New research says don't. And yeah. you, you sort of uh, sort of alluded to that, that maybe screen time is not the issue. I think most of my parents that are going to be listening to this are like, you have to be kidding, Dean Underwood, that screen time is not an issue. Like, I have three boys, and they seem to be down and in on their screens all the time, watching videos, checking in on their different apps, on social media platforms, um, potentially sometimes even remarkably reading something. Um, But this article in the Times uh, from just last week, you you can Google it. 
there's yeah the listeners for sure it kind of pushes back on gene twangy and some of the others you know basically challenging the widespread belief quoting the article that quote screens are responsible for broad societal programs like the rising rates of anxiety and sleep deprivation among teenagers in most cases the article says the phone is just a mirror that reveals the problems a child would have even without the phone Mm-hmm. So this is very much what you were just saying, who I am online. If I'm a bully online, I'm a bully when I'm sitting in the lunchroom next to you face to face. Where are you on this idea of, of screen time? Should we limit it? Should kids have it and use it as all? Should we just be counseling them how to use it? Where, where are you on that question? I, I think we should limit it and encourage young people to make reasonable choices about it. And we sh- ourselves should model moderate use of all of these devices. But as far as the scientific evidence goes, Candace Odgers, who yeah. is the one featured in that New York Times article, yeah. she is absolutely correct. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, she is right. Um, I do not agree with Jane Twingy's perspective. That book, iGen, yes. is full of it's survey data for hundreds of thousands of people that finds very modest correlations, extremely tiny effect sizes, Others have analyzed her same data. They find that the effect of wearing glasses or riding a bicycle is stronger on mental health than the effect of screen time. So those are giant survey studies with like one question, how much time do you look at media or how much time? So the studies that are more sophisticated that look closely at what people actually do online suggest that screen time is not the issue. Now, do we want them on screens 24-7? Absolutely not, you know, and, and I think we have to watch our behavior as adults because a lot of the ways that we characterize young people, oh, they're never they're good to their phones, often parents are that way too. And I have a colleague at, at Brigham Young University, Sarah Coyne, who's done observational studies of families at mealtimes and who picks up the phone first. And it's actually the adults. Adults are more likely to pick up their phone at family mealtimes than kids. So. Yeah. All of us need to watch this. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the really interesting point, right? It's like uh, it may not be making you depressed or f- feel like you're isolated or in some way uh, impacting your mental well-being, but it doesn't mean it's uh, social behavior or socially yeah. appropriate behavior or or the type of family environment that you want to create or the type of individual that you want to have as a colleague or or in your in your social friend group. Relative to the notion, though, of um, this element of addiction mm-hmm. to screen, which may be different than mental health. Like I may not be depressed, but I still may be addicted to being on that. If I'm one of the rich getter richer and I'm just on the screen all the time, like I'm feeling great because everything I'm getting there is affirming, but I'm still sort of uh, in a mode where I've just, I'm reliant on this device more than I should be. Uh, are you familiar with, or are you all doing any research in this space of addiction to screen? And what, what are your thoughts on that? You know what I believe? I think they're addicted to each other, not to the devices. I think they're addicted to the peer contact and the peer reinforcement in the same way that we were when we were kids, to be quite honest. And, you know, there's a wonderful book, an ethnography of young people, and it's called It's Complicated, The Social Network Lives of Teens. And it's by a woman named Dana Boyd. Mm B-O-Y-D. That is a marvelous book. And Mm -hmm. Dana's got a doctoral degree in communication. She works for Microsoft. She's a very creative, innovative thinker. Mm -hmm. And this is her analysis of what young people are doing in social networking sites and what it means for them. And she, she argues that they're addicted to each other, not to the devices and not to the platforms. And I agree with her wholeheartedly. 
Yeah, so how interesting is that, right? We're talking about belonging as the theme for this year and sort of exploring it and really what technology may illuminate is what we've talked about through every episode is that there's a deep human need, a craving need to be connected. Mm -hmm. And technology has created this ready, in-your-hand, portable portal yep. to connection, right? So how fascinating to think about it that way. Because I, I have referenced in previous episodes, I think twice now, this Cigna study that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, yeah. being that you're uh, the dean of a college where uh, this is very much uh, part and parcel for uh, the studies that are taking place there from Cigna around loneliness, that the loneliness, the, the loneliest of groups as surveyed using the UCLA uh, loneliness um, uh, survey device was 18 to 22 year olds, right? So immediately the thing that we sort of launch into is this apparent like, um, this apparent um, disconnect between people always connected or seeking it on their screens and ostensibly finding it and yet reporting in many instances this sense of being left out alone having nobody to turn to no one that knows them well how do you, how do you rec how do you reconcile this i find it imminently fascinating and, and a bit perplexing well the way i read the cigna results is that they actually didn't find that time spent on social media related to loneliness but they did note the age difference that you observed i think we have to look at lots of different change lots of changes in in our lifestyles and so you know, I worry about what all the screen time replaces, the face-to-face -face interaction, the family meals, the daydreaming, the problem solving, the just doing nothing, the letting yourself be a little bit bored and letting your mind wander. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I have those concerns for sure. But if we think about this, this generation now, and I've got daughters ages 21 and 24, so I'm sort of raising that age group as well as working with a lot of them here at Purdue, um, you know, a lot of things have changed they don't necessarily eat with their families when they're home as much as they as much as they did you know growing up i don't think there i don't think as many families have family dinners people live far away from extended family yep. um, students go to college not certain that getting a degree will yield them a job you know we've been in such an uncertain economy they have a lot of reasons to be to feel worried to feel at loose ends to feel like they're not connected um, I think, to, I think that social media and digital communication builds certain skills. I think kids get great with words and economy of expression, um, but maybe they're not as good at reaching out in person. Maybe they're not as good as picking up the phone. Maybe they don't get as much practice in, in joining new groups. You know, I would love to do a study in university residence halls, um, seeing how many people are eating by themselves on their phones. You know, what, so the, it's, it's changed things for sure. I don't think it's increased loneliness. I think a lot of things have combined together for this Generation Z uh, to make them feel less connected. And their, their parents are on their phones more too. So those forces are operating in their lives and in their homes. The things that young people are doing, it's just as common. We should be just as worried about adults. Yeah, I have no data behind this, I've, uh, but our neighborhoods are less locust, right? So, so we're less connected in our neighborhoods. There is data behind the decrease, especially in this age group, uh, with connectability to church or spiritual groups, right? Absolutely. So being connected to church communities has decreased. That, I think, is another um, another evidence of sort of an ancillary input beyond technology that, that you reference as to sort of our present state of mind as a society. Gallup right there at, at Purdue, the Gallup Index poll that comes out of Purdue, which is amazing data, you know, tells us uh, that two, two out of three um, um, American adults are disconnected at work. 
you know, effectively finding their work to be passionless and purposeless. And I trace that 66% back in a lot of my talks to the sort of vacuous educational experience that we have, right? So our kids after seventh grade are essentially a spoon fed an education experience, which is essentially about climbing rungs to get to excellent institutions like yours. They climb the rungs that the institution like yours lay out, and then they arrive at a life at 22 or 23 trying to figure out who am I? Why did I just run that rat race of an educational experience? And what the heck am I going to do with my life? So to me, it's like, yeah, screens are part of it. But I always get a little frustrated when I see all this research on on screens and the sort of state of mind of the young people of today in terms of their mental well-being. Because I think those of us that are running schools and thinking about program and curriculum and how school feels should be taking a lot more on ourselves to change the model, right? To make school more joyful, connective, relevant, authentic, Uh, uh, revealing to kids about who they are and what their purpose in life is. So I'm kind of with you. Like to me, it's not a, it's, it's not a, it's this, it's the technology's fault. It's a lot of societal inputs and a lot about how we educate. Absolutely. There's a wonderful book by William Dershowitz called Excellent Sheep. Have you read this book? Yes. And cited it often. Excellent. I love that book. And to me, that book, what that, how that speaks to me, it is our job to help these young people find their calling their vocations, what they would do if nobody paid them, what they love so much that they can't help but want to do for the rest of their lives. That's what I'm here to do. Uh, I don't think screens devices have to interfere with the pursuit of that. And in fact, they can quite help it. I mean, they can help young people envision possibilities and dream and exercise leadership and all the rest. But, But the spoon feeding, we've got to move beyond that. We have to help young people discover their own purpose, discover what what would mean what work would be so meaningful to them that they would love to do it forever. Yeah, and, and while, we're, while we're exchanging books and professors, uh, Susan Bloom, who's up there at Notre Dame, uh, as a professor there, has written, uh, you know, basically talks about uh, the, the notion of like when you're learning in the cage, you yeah. know, uh, learning. And, and so she's really talking about this notion that schools have to get, uh, uh, really ha- kind of push us to think about uh, more of learning in the wild, right? They have to be Absolutely. less structured and, and less standardized and, a guy named Tim, Tim Clydesdale, who might be up there at Purdue. I'm not so sh- I'm not sure, Marion, but he wrote a book called The Purposeful Graduate, and 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 his entire study was uh, uh, the, f- funded by the Lilly Foundation uh, to look at programs in colleges that had uh, allowed students to uh, connect to greater um, uh, to greater points of purpose. So, uh, c- completely completely agree with you, and and this uh, element of how programs like ours at Parish are trying to focus not just on the academic elements of things, but on these, uh, like through even through our daily chapel, right? This notion of uh, where do you plug in? How are you tending to your spiritual life? You know, what what is the what is the larger calling that we're all asked to seek? I mean, I think these are things that schools like ours have to pay a lot of attention to. I guess in wrapping up, I, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but you're the expert. I'm not. Um, Related to technology, is the genie out of the bottle, or to the degree we got problems or challenges with this, is are we going to see uh, uh, more limits on technology use? Silicon Valley leaders are now showing a little bit of remorse, like as to what they've let loose. The federal government has done some, uh, you know, uh, some posturing around maybe stepping into place limits. There are organizations out there saying, you know, no cell phones by eighth grade, you know, or whatever the case may be, like. What, what do you foresee in the future when it comes to uh, young people and technology? Genie out of the bottle or a chance to maybe put some limits and structure around this? 
I, I think the genie is out of the bottle a little bit in yeah. that I think the devices are here to stay, the, all the different platforms and the technologies will continue to evolve. Um, I think all of us need to socialize young people to use these devices, to use these platforms in reasonable ways. We need to talk to them about their social lives. We need to talk about their online experiences. We need to talk about why it's so important to them. And we need to socialize them how to use these technologies for good. And we need to give them plenty of opportunities to step away. Yeah. So I, th I think parents in some ways have just kind of given up. They think, well, there's nothing I can do. I don't know anything about this. I can't set any limits. Oh, yes, you can. I think parents ought to get on these platforms themselves. They ought to be their children's friends and followers when they're young. Um, I think when they're young, they ought to have their passwords, actually. I'm not a big fan of, of the monitoring services because the amount of content is so vast. Who could possibly monitor it anyway? And kids develop alternate accounts and all the rest. But, you know, on a good day, our best chance of influencing our own child is through our close relationships with them. So I think we need to talk with them. If they say, I want a phone, well, why do you want a phone? What do you, what do you think you're going to do on that? What's going to be good about it? Could there be some bad things about having a, a phone? I want to get on Instagram. Well, what do you think that's going to be like? What could the good things about it be? What could the bad things? Could you ever see something on Instagram that could hurt your feelings? Mm -hmm. Then let them start. But look at it every once in a while. Follow what they're putting out there to the big wide world. Talk to them about it. Um, that's, that's our best hope. Yeah. And I think this, you know, adults imagine that there's this firm line between the offline world and the online world. And the online world is somehow scary and vague and something that we have no influence over. First of all, that line exists only in the minds of adults. For young people, who they're socializing with online is pretty much who they're seeing every day, too. Plus, maybe some far away. But yeah. most of what they're spending their time with online is the people they're at school with. So it's right. all one world. It's seamless to them, and it all matters to them. So we have to help them operate well in that world and talk to them about how we expect them to behave, about some difficulties they could encounter, help them navigate that, and help them see the possibilities for using it positively. Yeah, now, and I, also heard, I also heard you say as another point of advice, helping them see activities that are non-technology-based. Absolutely. That, uh, that can enrich can enrich their day, you know, an hour walk outside without technology or, uh, you know, an ability to go, uh, uh, you know, uh, visit with friends and do things uh, that are activity based that don't require the technology to be to be present. So that's another great piece of advice, too, that, uh, you know, to, to, to help kids figure out where they find balance without yeah. technology in their world. And I think, you know, absolutely no phones at the dinner table. Phones get plugged in downstairs outside of bedrooms. 85% of our sample said they slept with their Blackberries under their bed, under their pillows so they could hear notification. That messes with their sleep. That's horrible for their mood. So everybody in the family needs to charge their phones downstairs away from bed. Parents can set other limits. So when my children were in middle school, I would work a, an early schedule. I'd be in the office from about 7.30 to 8.30 or no, 7.30 to 3.30, so I could be in that carpool line right. and drive them where they needed to go. And that was about when the kids were starting to get phones. And I just said, look, I am leaving my job early to spend time with you. You're not going to sit in my car on the phone. And so it was a rule. If I was driving them around to activities, no phones, we would talk. And I've relented on that now that they're older. They're going to be on their phones in my car now. But, but I wanted them to engage with me. I wanted them to talk to me. You know, I love that riding around time. So. Yeah. 
Well, it's fascinating, fascinating research in a, I know, a rapidly evolving uh, field and uh, the well-being of our young people, the ones that you're working with and the ones we are at Parish is obviously the, the calling that, that, that we uh, feel very strongly about. So thanks for being a great friend of, of Parish and for sharing your wisdom with us. And, and uh, we look forward to continued uh, work together as we can be of service to your graduate students or uh, or as you come back to Dallas for a visit, maybe get you on campus and say oh, that. I would, I would love that. And thank you for your wonderful leadership of Paris Parish. And I could talk to you about higher education all day. So it's, I would uh, love to do that, too. So maybe in, uh, in our next visit. Thanks so much, Dean Underwood. Thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode of the podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by an academic and author whose perspectives on education, and especially the need to personalize the educational experiences for learners, have been immensely influential on me. Todd Rose, who helped launch the Science of Individuality Studies at the Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, will be my guest. Todd's books, End of Average and Dark Horse, have been provocative additions to the education, social science, and psychology spaces over the last several years. I look forward to bringing Todd Rose to you in the next episode. Until the next time, thanks for joining me on the From My Angle podcast.